Coming up next, the Bookening Reads. Yes, I remembered. <laughs> Frankenstein! Everybody, welcome to the Bookening. Welcome to another spooky October, my favorite month of the year. Or should I say my favorite month of the fear? <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's probably not. <laughs> <laughs> another in our hollow scream episodes. Some of my favorite episodes that we do every year where we celebrate the great uh. <laughs> Don't well, you mean? I'm already groaning. Don't you mean? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, no. I mean, uh... Well, let me introduce the the ghouls. No, no, no. The boils that will be <laughs> helping me. No ghouls allowed on this podcast. Just boils. We got a except sign up on the door Step that Danny. says that. Except for Dubstep Danny. That's right. Dubstep Danny. Wonderful Goyle or Goyle. <laughs> no, no, I'm just a gangster. <laughs> 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 Brandon Chastfiend. Hey, Nathan. The scholar who's a mauler of bleeding. Oh, I forgot Did that, you go that was back my and name. These up? <laughs> I just remembered them. <laughs> We've done them for two fears in a... Two fears? Two fears in a row now. How many fears make up a... <laughs> A scream for us. No, every fear we do another. We do some more Hollow Scream episodes. Of course, we've got the Mauler, who's a, the scholar, who's a Mauler of bleeding over there. Yep. And Jake Mensch Killer, the oh shoot, I don't know if I remember this. He should one. be Minch Killer. Mitch Killer. Minch. A Minch. Like he kills. Yeah, like he kills guy. Minches. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a Minch <laughs> yeah, he's Killer. A minch Killer. Yeah. yeah. Minch is just a generic word for people. Yeah. In German, actually. There you go. A man, a dude. So he's right. a mensch killer. He's a mensch killer, the pastor who's a disaster, a bleeding. Happy Halloween month, Jake. Happy Halloween month. We've got four episodes of this. Yay, I'm so excited. Or should I say Epigosts? Uh, probably not. <laughs> no, I don't think you should say that. <laughs> All right. Well, today... Fellas, we're talking about Frankenstein. Mm. Sure enough. Or the the modern Prometheus. Mm. And what's that spooky sound? It's the contextual... I need a contextual Texan pun, Jake. Halloween pun. Uh, I got nothing for you, man. I mean, I could probably, you know, the contextual skeleton. Ooh, Ugh. that's me. I'm not happy with that. Yeah, neither am I, Nathan. <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> Next year. It's not easy to come up with Halloween puns. And we've done two years, or two fears, I should say, mm. in a row of this now. So three. Yep. No, is this our third Halloween we've celebrated together? Yep. Yeah, this is our third season. You guys excited about October? You surely would both confess that that's the best month of the year, or fear. I don't know if I'd confess that. <laughs> Don't don't know that I would either. Really? You yeah. really like October that much? What what other month would you put up against it? There's a crisp chill of apples and pumpkins, and it's just a delightful. October is nice. So is December. Yep. So ah. is all of spring. Ah. Mm-hmm. Spring is full of allergens and growth and 
June is pretty nice. Mm, May. You like the June is hot. May and June, pretty mm, nice. Bugs. I think we're finding out that Jake just likes every month. <laughs> In this, then the summer months with the night. <laughs> I thought that you guys were going to make go the other direction and be like, is, Nathan, uh, how cliche to like October, but instead you're like, October, who likes that? Which is a really interesting that's, no, reaction. That's not what we said. That is not what we said, Nathan. We said October is pretty great. But so are mo- other months. What month would you put against October, Brandon? <sighs> December, yeah. December's great. You picture like a nice white Christmas, but we never really get it around these parts. Usually yeah. it's just rain and mud and mm-hmm. stuff like that. September's nice. September. Yeah. September was terrible this year. Was it? Well, it was like hot this year, but 90 degrees. As far as you know, October's going to be hot. Perfect. There'll be gourds and... November's nice. Yeah, November's The trees. Nice. I was born in November. Yeah. That's what makes it so wonderful. The trees will be at their yellowest and reddest and everything in October though. Yeah. I'm going to guess... I'm just going to take I'm just going to I'm just going to say it. I bet many of the listeners are on my side on this one. That October's oh, that the greatest. That wouldn't surprise me either. I'm not we're not arguing that October is not the best month. You just, you know, there are other good months, that's all. Yeah. No, I'm not I mean, I like all 12 of them personally. So yeah. August. August is yeah. August is the worst of all months. August could just not be a month and we'd be happy. Yeah. Who needs 12 months? Yeah. All right, Brandon, now you can do your contextual skeleton. I don't have anything better. That's all you're going to do? So, well, I'd love to do something better. I'll think about it while you give your context. All right. Let's do this. Brendan, of course, provides some much needed, I should say, much bleated context for this work. So that's what he's going to do for Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus by Scary Shelley. We are. Why, why are we reading Frankenstein? It's because special, it's the 200 fear scariversary. It's the bicentennial. Can you do or, that one? Well, <laughs> I'll let Jake take it because he probably wants to say it. It's been 200 years since it was published. No, Jake. Bicentennial? You, this is a setup to say dicentennial. No. Bison. Like bison are scary. Right. Have you ever seen a bison? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll do it. Yeah. The 200 fear. It's the 200 fear dicentennial of scary <laughs> Shelley's. Well, what's a 200 year dicentennial? Uh, 200 year bicentennial is like. That'd be like. Lots of I mean, thousands of years. Yeah, four four hundred thousand or something like that. The dicentennial, two hundred dicentennial. Yeah, a dicentennial is just for our purposes today a spooky way of saying bicentennial. Hmm. So it's the well, two. No, but it's the first bicentennial, not the two hundredth bicentennial. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I understand now. So it's the only uh-huh. dicentennial of scary Shelley's uh-huh. Franken. Die. Frankenstein. Because Frankenstein isn't Halloween enough. <laughs> Frankenstein, children. <laughs> You're welcome, listener. Everybody loves this. Okay, so it's the 200th anniversary, which means that this was published in 1818. First mm. came into the heads of the famous lovers. Everybody knows the story, and we'll talk about it. They're around Lake Geneva, I believe. Lake Geneva. She, they, they were pitching ghost story ideas, and this came to her. And two years later, with the help of her husband at that point, Shelley Pierce Bish Shelley or Bishy, I don't really know how you're supposed to say it. B Y S S H E Bish Bish. <laughs> she wrote this book, mm-hmm. and um, now two hundred years later, we're reading it. <laughs> we sure are. 
boy, is it a product of its time. Mm. I think it's good to remember that this book was published very shortly after Emma was published. And in fact, Persuasion, the last of Anne Northanger Abbey and Persuasion were both published posthumously in 1818. So they both came out the same year that Frankenstein came out, which obviously Hmm. they were both written by Jane Austen, who, as we'll discuss, I'm sure has a very different writing style than, than Lady Shelley. She does. Nay, Godwin. Yes, do tell. Yep. So let's start where we always start with a bio. Mm-hmm. Um, dio. A dio. Mary was born into a family that would forecast the way she would go with her morals and the way she lived her life early on. She was basically, we live in Bloomington, which maybe not everybody knows, but Bloomington, Indiana is a little hipster uh, mecca. Um, largely thanks to the university around here, but you have a lot of people who live their bohemian lives wishing that they are hoping that they will be the next Shelley or Shelley, Pierce Bish and Lady Shelley. So they come here and they live their artistic lives, living off their parents' money, wearing their funny clothing, drinking their hipster coffee, and writing their works that they hopefully, they, they hope that somebody will one day want to read. Largely, probably nobody will ever want to read it, and we'll discuss whether or not anybody should have ever wanted to read Mary Shelley's book. But it ha- we have, 200 years later, we're still reading it. And it has inspired lots of uh, imitations and lots of film adaptations. Is that the right word? Many a film adaptation. Many film adaptations. So as far as influencing the modern imagination, we've this ranks up there with probably the most important works we've read. I mean, Frankenstein, Dracula, these are the defining stars of the horror genre. Certainly. we have it now. He's got his own so, cereal, Frankenberry. Does yeah, Frank- that's right. Frankenberry still? Frankenberry still, still a thing. I, sure, why not? <laughs> um, and so what, what got us to the point where this book was created? So, well, the first point that got us to where this book was created is that uh, Godwin married, uh, William Godwin married a lady named Mary Wollstonecraft, and they mm-hmm. had a baby who they named Mary. When we talk about the fact that Jane Austen was in fact not a proto-feminist, but that actual feminism was a thing... The person that I'm always thinking of is Mary Wollstonecraft. Absolutely right. Who died shortly after her baby uh, Mary was born, her daughter Mary. In fact, I think it was just a month after her birth, Mary Wollstonecraft died. So uh, Mary Godwin, who would later become Mary Shelley, Mm -hmm. would live her entire life under the shadow of her mother and looking very fondly on her mother and wishing that she had this mother in her life. Her father would later remarry a lady named... um, her last name was Claremont, and she would have a daughter, Claire, and these, these will be fa- these will be important figures later in the story. But just to then take a moment to dis- to to explain who her parents were, because they were very influential in who Mary would become. Mm-hmm. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was a famous feminist, had a good education, but never a lot of money. And so she didn't have access to a lot of of the social advantages that would come with money at the time. And so she spent her entire life as a feminist, writing books that said that women should have equal opportunity. They should be seen as equals of men. They should have access to just as good an education, just as good of employment opportunities as men. A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Yep, that was her famous book, was The Vindication of the Rights of Women. This She became famous for this book, but even more famous early on for her uh, notorious way of living. She committed adultery multiple times. She's famous for having committed adultery with one artist, who then she suggested maybe she could just live with him and his wife, which then when the artist proposed this to his wife, his wife got very angry and that ended what? the relationship. <laughs> so she wanted to have what was called a platonic relationship in their home where the three of them would just live together and you know do the things that the three of them would do together and all that sort of stuff. And so she was... <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't know, Nathan, read between the lines. <laughs> because she was a early proponent of um, the sort of free love that we 
come back into the forefront with the 1960s movements. So nothing is new under the sun. This was all way back in the late 1700s, which is why when you're warned to be careful thinking anything older than anything older than a few than 100 years ago is right. worth reading, then you need to be careful because Mary Wollstonecraft was basically what we would see as a dangerous feminist today. And she had a lot of dangerous ideas and um, is really not worth reading. She would eventually marry this political thinker who was known as a libertarian and anarchist at the time, William Godwin. He was famous for, in the early, late 1700s, and this is important to know, we had the French Revolution. And around the French, the French Revolution arose at the same time as you had fierce debates over the Enlightenment happening. And the Enlightenment was, we, have we talked about the Enlightenment before? Uh, not well, it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about it again anyways. The Enlightenment was this period in especially scientific thinking and um, philosophy where people were responding to the new, the new discoveries in science and thinking that uh, reason and science could show us the way forward. And so there were a lot of re- re- arguments over politics, arguments over religion, as we started to move towards what we think of as modernity, mm-hmm. very uh, reason and science-based and anti-religion and conservatism. Well, on one side of the debate, you had Edmund Burke, who was a very conservative champion in England, and he was against the French Revolution. And then you had on the other side, this guy named Thomas Paine, mm-hmm. who would become very influential in a little the formation of a little country called America. He wrote a pamphlet where he was defending the rights of liberty and freedom. The frights. The frights of liberty and By freedom. By Thomas Paine. And so the French Revolution was this little, uh, what, what, what would you call it? Uh, uh, an arena, an arena, okay. a place where the ideas that were coming out of the Enlightenment could come to blows, mm-hmm. right? And depending on the way you looked at the revolution, kind of situated, situated your thinking in the debate. Mm-hmm. And so you had the old conservative thinking of the sort of classical era with Edmund Burke. You had the new sort of thinking with the Enlightenment that was championing reason, championing abstract ideas like liberty and freedom and all these ideas who would then look favorably on the French Revolution. Mary Wollstonecraft would look favorably on the French Revolution. They were all fighting Edmund Burke. And then here comes Godwin. He gets himself involved too. And he decides he's going to be an anarchist and argue for the um, innate goodness of men. And that eventually, if left to ourselves, morals will develop and progress to such a way that we will have a utopian society and a sort of early communism before Marx. And so this was his, these were his ideas. And this was, these were her parents, early communist thinking, early anarchist thinking, and early feminist thinking. They fall in love, they get married, and they have little baby Mary. And her mom dies a month later. So these are her parents. This is the environment that she's born into. So it shouldn't surprise you that as she grew, as she had this man for her father, who probably won't also surprise you, was fiercely in debt most of his life. (laughs) Was he always trying to escape creditors? And that she would become a sort of free-thinking feminist hipster is Mm -hmm. basically the best way to think of her in her early life. And it was under, it was uh, this sort of, what, imagination and this sort of personality that she would first meet the young poet at the time, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Okay. And so just a quick pause. Maybe not, I don't know if a lot of people have ever heard of Percy Bysshe Shelley. He may not be as famous today as he was at the time, but at that point he was known for two things. He and Lord Byron, more people have heard of Lord Byron because he's very notorious, Mm -hmm. but they were known as being aristocrats who had turned against their aristocratic families, kind of a lot like Tolstoy would do later on, but in the sense that they thought that the aristocracy should be giving money to the poor. 
and very liberal ideologies, which not all of them were bad, but it didn't lead to them having good moral lives. They were both famous for being playboys who would go all over England sleeping, committing adultery, fornicating, all these things. Not necessarily always with ladies either. Not always with ladies. That wouldn't be telling tales out of school. Yeah, in fact, um, many people assume or at least guess that Shelley and Byron were... If not lovers, at least, uh, what's the word? Bedfellows. Bedfellows. I don't don't know what else. What other word? I don't know what you would say. But the point being that licentiousness was a part of their life. And this fit right in with the sort of free love thinking that Mary inherited from both her father and her mother. And so even though later in his life, Godwin, William Godwin, would become a bit more conservative, Mary would rebel to an extent against her father, and she would fall in love with Shelley. They, it's really, and we're going to talk more about the Gothic stuff later, but it's really kind of nasty stuff that happened. Apparently, she lost her virginity in the cemetery where her mother mother was buried, which is where she and Shelley would meet to quote poetry and fall in love with one another. And so this is sort of the gross romantic ideals that were starting to just influence their life. And so they decide to run off together. She's pregnant. Shelley is actually married at the time. He abandons his wife, who is also pregnant. They uh, run off together to Europe. Then they come back. Mary has her baby who dies prematurely. At this time, I guess we should take a quick step back. Godwin had remarried um, around the age of 14 or 15, when Shelley was 14 or 15, to a lady that she was not awfully fond of. But she came in with two other, her, her stepmother had two children. One of them's name was Claire, and it's Claire Claremont. And when she would run off with Shelley later, she would take Claire with her. Well, lo and behold, it turns out that Shelley decided he was going to start having an affair with Claire as well. And so apparently to try and get Mary to be okay with this, he started to encourage his friend Hogg to come to their house to try and hopefully get Hogg and Mary Shelley to fall in love. So this is the sort of, this is just the sort of life she was living in. It's a time. beautiful story. So yeah, it's a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. A fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. Well, Shelley at the time, he was an aristocrat. He didn't have a lot of money because his family was not very fond of him. But then I think his grandfather or something died. He came into some fortune. Eventually they get married. They move off to Europe together for a while and they have their famous stay around Lake Geneva with Claire, with Lord Byron, and with his doctor. <laughs> who would pull the diary, mm-hmm. who would write most of this down. And this is how we know most of this is through his writings. Gentleman that published the first vampire story. Or the That's first, right. The first vampire story we, of modernity, at least. That's how we've heard that name before. Which was published under Byron's name originally. So there's some yeah. argument there. But fun fact for you, go listen to our Dracula episode for more history there. <sighs> so this is the life she was living. Uh, living. Also, another fact is that um, Byron, uh, Shelley's wife, who he had abandoned, around this time committed suicide. So it's just a nasty, nasty life that they were living. But of course, a lot of people romanticize this. You have plenty of stories where this is just romanticized and seen as beautiful. Isn't there a Hugh Grant movie about all this? Rest, uh, I, forget what uh, it's called. I think Hugh Grant's movie might be about um, Chopin, because uh, Chopin's story is very similar. Chopin ended up running away with a woman named George Sand. Huh, okay, that who was be, married yeah. at the time. I'm picturing so, I mean, Hugh, a young Hugh Grant on the beach in a wig with the waves lapping or and the it, he might have. Music. I mean, Hugh Grant was all into this sort of stuff. Right. One one thing that hopefully is clear to anyone listening now is that the sort of stories that Jane Austen wrote about with people running off with suitors and also that Tolstoy would then later write about with the just the debauchery of the upper class and the intelligentsia at the time. They were true. They were based on reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we're seeing one play out right here in front of us. And so 
then before we get to Frankenstein and her writing Frankenstein, when this, when we'll kind of end there. Let's then take a step back and look at the sort of ideologies that allowed this to happen. As I mentioned, the Enlightenment was a philosophical movement hand in hand with the scientific revolutions of the day. Um, at the time, you were having great advancements in science. You also had thinkers such as in, from France and Europe and philosophers like Rousseau, mm-hmm. who would be talking about the innate innocence of men, and especially barbarians, until they're corrupted by society. People need to know that that sort of thinking existed in the Enlightenment because it would become heavily influential in Romanticism, and you can also see heavy influences of it in Frankenstein. Because you have to ask the question, would the monster have ever been a monster if it hadn't been for the social burdens that he was under? And I think the novel is suggesting that, no, he wouldn't have become a monster if it hadn't been for the social injustices that mm-hmm. he suffered. Anybody who has any sort of discernment also hears this all. Here's all the modern debates that we're having in, in this as well. So this stuff hasn't died. Mm-hmm. This is just kind of where it came from. So we have the Enlightenment, social reason, also these uh, proponents like Thomas Paine of justice, of the big abstract concepts of justice and freedom. You have Rousseau, who was a proponent of the natural goodness of man away from society. And in then response to that, you have a artistic movement called the Romantic Movement. And this is a big, messy movement, but for our, for our purposes, what it means is the poetry and literature that was written in the early 1800s in response to these things that were happening. The Romantic Movement, its roots, its etymology is actually in romans, which is the French chivalric, chivalric novels that would be all about chivalry and romance. Courtly love. Of thing. Yeah, and... courtly love. But it didn't have the sort of amorous connotations that we have with romance today. It would have been more of the high emotions and high feelings that come with chivalry. This would carry over as a response to the Enlightenment, especially in the late 17, uh, 1700s, because you can imagine that out of the Enlightenment would become, uh, if they were really emphasizing reason, the branch of the Enlightenment that was science and reason, that this would bother people, the technology, the the move towards modernization, the move towards um, industry. This would bother people because they uh, poets and artists would see that it was emphasizing reason over feeling. And so the poets of the time would begin to go back to nature, would begin to uh, praise nature, the innocence of childhood. It's an interesting fact that in the branch of German Romanticism, which we'll talk about in just a minute, one of the results of this was in the 1812, uh, the Grimm, Brothers Grimm compiled their stories of fairy tales, which was a direct product of a praise and love of childhood, folktale, and these sorts of things that they thought were being lost because of the move towards modernization. So some good actually came out of the Romantic movement. Hmm. In Germany, which was where Romanticism really started, we see there was this movement called Storm and Drunk, which meant storm and thunder. And what it really praised were fierce emotions, fierce feelings over reason. And one of the earliest works we have for this is a little book called The Sorrows of Young Werther. And I bring this up because it's directly mentioned in Frankenstein as being an influential book. And this was written in 1774 by a young Goethe. I think that's how you say his name. Goethe. Goethe. Um, who is more famous for having written Faust, which is seen as the greatest work in uh, German literature. So, but this was his early work and it actually got him a lot of fame. What it's about, it's about this young intellectual man who falls in love with this woman, fiercely in love with her, like just just oozing passion and all these feelings. And it's, it's as nasty as you would expect, but you're supposed to feel sympathy for Werther. And then when he's disappointed, he shoots himself at the end of the book. And this <laughs> became 
famous all over Europe and England at the time. There was actually a certain, uh, there was something called Werther Fever, where people just were in love with Werther. And it also inspired copycat suicides all over the place. So this was one of the early instances of um, like Kurt Cobain or somebody killing themselves. And then the copycat stuff that this, he, he was a celebrity. And this really helped to inspire the sort of bohemian, go with your feelings, let's love nature, all these sorts of things that would come with the romantic movement. And so this was in Germany. This would carry over into England with a small group of poets in the late 1700s, right around the time of the French Revolution. And the most famous would be William Wordsworth, Samuel Coleridge, and kind of the father of them all, Blake, William Blake. Blake. Um, Blake, we'll just set aside for now. He was a weirdo. He was a weirdo, but he was all about abstract thought and feeling. And he was an artist and a poet, and his stuff is very strange. He was a mystic, yeah. So you can understand why romanticism and mysticism would kind of go hand in hand. Wordsworth would come along, and his poetry would be all about the English countryside, about old mossy abbeys that have been abandoned, about the poor, early strains of sentimentalism that you'll see in Dickens and stuff like that, that would come up with the Victorians. But what was really important for their work is this emphasis of feeling. In fact, Wordsworth has a famous thing where he would say that romanticism is the recollection of an intense feeling in a moment of solitude or something like that. So when the poet's alone and just thinking about this intense feeling they've had at one point, and that in and of itself was valuable, a good thing, more valuable than reason and rationality. Another thing that they would praise at the time would be the feelings that you would get from nature and and especially the intense feelings you would get from nature. And so they would emphasize things like horror and the sublime. And so almost every romantic poet would write a poem about some mountain. One of the mountains they loved to write about was a mountain that makes its appearance in Frankenstein, Mont Blanc. Um, Shelley has a poem about it, and I'm pretty sure Lord Byron does as as well. And what they would emphasize were these feelings of intense smallness in the face of something horrific, or something that's much bigger than we are. In this sense, a mountain landscape, or in Frankenstein, the monster, right? This was romanticism. This was the romantic movement in poetry that was really emphasizing feeling and nature and natural human innocence over the sort of cold rationality that would be coming through um, the Enlightenment era. And yet it's itself is also a product of the Enlightenment era, which mm-hmm. is always fascinating and confusing. Just an interesting side note, the Romantic movement in literature would also then go to America, where we would have Edgar Allan Poe and mm-hmm. Hawthorne both in this tradition. This is interestingly, with- both of them are sort of, both of those two gentlemen are almost reacting, not reacting against it, but really Poe, of course, obviously, but also Hawthorne, just talking about horrors of the old Puritism meeting with the new Romanticism, and it, it ain't pretty yeah. for either one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, none of this is pretty for any of them. And so you see the com- conflict in Frankenstein as well. Mm-hmm her desire to have these intense feelings and emotions, but also the realization that that can't give you everything, right? I think you can see some of the disappointment she was having over her own life as well. I mean, none of them could have been actually happy. That's the thing. You hear this story, mm-hmm. and they had to be miserable people. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what you get if you just go down to a coffee house here in Bloomington. All you just see is miserable people trying to pretend like they're happy. It's that scene in, uh, that Tolstoy captures so well in Anna Karenina. Dolly's really fantasizing about the glamour of this kind of lifestyle, and then she goes and yep. tastes the reality of it, and it's so nasty. She can't wait to get home. Yeah, when she's in the carriage on the way back, and she's just like, thank goodness. Yep, exactly. My, my, my husband might be a monster, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time I read that chapter, I think of Lake Geneva and what it must have actually been like. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And so this is so this is the intellectual thinking and the sort of the ideologies, the the philosophies that gave rise to Frankenstein and to the people who would write this sort of stuff. Um, just I mean I know people might care. So one of the probably the most important representative work of romantic poetry, if people want to go read it, is a book called The Lyrical Ballads. And it was published by Wordsworth and Coleridge together. And in it, you'll get some of, you'll get a lot of the famous Wordsworth works, but you'll also get the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which again is quoted numerous times in Frankenstein. All over the place. Yeah. And so, and the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is basically about the limits of reason in the face of mystery. And so, one of the most, Keats would be a little bit later, but his idea of negative capability, where he, his, his thought was, this is a letter that he wrote to somebody. I forget who he wrote it to, but he says that the poet's responsibility is to get to this point where they're completely free of reason and all they're doing is they're living in this negative capability where they're completely open to feeling this is why i, I don't like keats and well, i don't i don't like romantic poetry either there's always there's something and so that I'll, I'll make this point later with frankenstein but because we're also now reading bleak house getting ready for that there's something dirty about romanticism that is not dirty with and Dickens doesn't have the same dirtiness. Mm-hmm. There's something silly about Dickens. Sure. I'll give him that. But it's not dirty. And I think I know why. What's funny about this and what's funny about any liberal art in general is the fact that they claim that they're for the people. And yet what they end up doing is creating an art that's very restricted. And mm-hmm. it's for themselves. And it's a very intellectual, yes. closed-off art that nobody but them, they, them and the people who are educated enough to get it really care about. Yeah. Right. So they create... The demon they're trying to kill. Yes. Which is just, it's crazy. Then you get to someone like Dickens that they would look down on. Dickens was a populist. Everybody loved Dickens. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the dirtiness that I pick up on when I read Frankenstein. Yeah, there's something enclosed, so, something self-referential, and something it's, sexual. Yeah, it's what, it's what you word. get in um, uh, James Joyce. Mm. It's the sort of stuff we were talking about with him. <laughs> He's even grosser. But the villain yes. himself. Yep, yeah. the villain himself. He brings to mind the right word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. We won't tell you what it is. So. I mean, maybe it's simplistic to say, but what I just keep thinking about is rationalism starts to kill God, and then all these people are just flailing yep. to yeah. find the sublime somewhere else, <laughs> yep. and they're finding it in all these stupid, gross places. Perverse places. Perverse places, yeah. Yeah, because what you don't have is transcendental holiness, so what you need is some kind of transcendental, transcendental profaneness. Yes. And, and it is profane. And that... And that's why they, it all has this sort of perverse, profane vibe about everything that is, you know, it's sexual, it's mm-hmm. dirty. There, Every word like that we want to ascribe to it comes down to that, the rejection right. of the holiness of God. And it makes complete sense in that context that a strong, strapping, healthy young man like uh, like. Mr. Shelley would not be the one to write the ultimate horror story out of it. It would be a 19-year-old girl, because who actually suffers the most? The most when people are given over to perversion. Obviously, it's I mean, the it's most vulnerable. Not telling tales out us. It's going to be the most vulnerable, and who's the most vulnerable? But some, but the 19-year-old girl. Who in a world is yeah. more vulnerable than who's a 19-year-old girl? In. Who's bought in? And then you're going to be being used and abused by these men. Used, abused, and betrayed, as Brandon already described. But trying to pretend like she's okay with it. But trying to pretend like she's. A, it's yeah. going to create. Trying to pretend like she's in control. Yeah. But then she Just writes like Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, and then she writes a novel about Sheesh, a man. I who, wonder what's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> this is none of this is original with us i mean uh, people have talked about this in reference to frankenstein you know it's it's 
the classic reading of it, I suppose. Probably. I don't know. But maybe. I think it's, I think it's the, the best obvious reading of it. Reading of it's, it. Yeah. it's the, yeah, you can't help but see You don't it. have to have read other people talk about it to come yeah. to that conclusion at all. Mm-hmm. So, But other people talk about it all over the place, and rightly so. So, well, the only, the last thing to mention about romanticism, we've talked about their love of nature, the sublime, the, the importance of feeling over reason. The last thing that we really haven't mentioned is their praise of individualism. Mm-hmm. And why this is important is because, as we've talked about in the bookening many times, the idea of the genius came back into vogue. It was a big thing for the Greeks with the muse inspiring the genius. Died down. It wasn't even a way that people looked at art or craft until you get to the romantics, and now you can kind of see why. The person who's going to be open to feeling, I think we mentioned this in the Shakespeare context last time, but the um, Aeolian harp that's open to the wind of feeling. Mm -hmm. The person who's the most fine-tuned to feeling and has the most sensitivity to that is going to be the great genius who, as Leaves of Grass guy... Whitman. Uh, Whitman. I forgot his name last time, too. Just trying to destroy his memory out of my brain. <laughs> Blot it out like Sirius Black on the <laughs> tarp. <laughs> the, uh, anyways, they would be the great genius and champions. And so this is what we have. And so now we've set the scene. This is Lake Geneva. We have the men, Shelley, Byron, who think that they are this Aeolian harp who will set the, set the uh, stage for poetry. They will set the standards. They will be the gods of literature. Of the they, these are good gentlemen actually thought of themselves as earth-shattering geniuses who deserved to sleep with whoever they wanted, yeah. who deserved to get what they wanted and do what they wanted. And Now, Byron's a much more complicated figure than that. He actually kind of hated the romantic movement too because he just hated everything. And then he would eventually go off. He was, the, I think, the best analog we've ever had to Byron is Hemingway mm-hmm. because Byron would end up basically committing suicide by going and fighting in the Greek Revolution, right, and killing himself. Shelley, in a kind of ironic way, would die boating. He would be killed out on one of his boats during a storm and would mm-hmm. drown. Um, not many years after this, and nature got died. him. Yeah, I think he died in 1821 or something when um, Mary Shelley was still fairly young. Mm-hmm. And so, but we've set the stage. Now we know kind of the nasty filth that's around this moment in time where we're at Lake Geneva. There's no beauty. There's no mystery to it. There's no romanticism to it except for this is just the way we want to remember history. We have this group of people that are all fornicating together. Bunch of dirty hippies. Bunch of dirty hippies in this cabin. It's raining. They're bored. And so they decide to tell ghost stories. And the famous story is that Shelley, uh, Mary Godwin, I know she was Mary Shelley at that time. They kept asking her, had she come up with her ghost story yet? And she said, no. This was Lord Byron's idea. He suggested they had been telling Scottish ghost stories to each other. He said, well, why don't we all just make up our own? So they all did. She couldn't. And then she had, a, they were having a conversation one night and she meant they were talking about life. And she thought of this new th- scientific thing she'd heard of galvanism, where they were able to combine things together. And she then had a nightmare about about, and you can go and read it. It's famous, the, her narration of it. But of <clears throat> this profane young scientist bending over his horrible creation. Mm-hmm. And that's where Frankenstein came from, a dream. And she told the story. And then Shelley, her husband, encouraged her to write it. Some people, some sexist, awful people think that Shelley actually wrote it himself. What was it? Who was, whose name was it published under originally? Because it wasn't her. Her name wasn't. On I think it might have been under his name. Her name was on the second edition. I don't yeah. know whose name was on the first. Maybe it was just anonymous. Yeah, it may have been anonymous. It may have been his, but probably, she, I mean, most likely she wrote it because she then would have a career after that writing other novels and... Well, and frankly, Shelley, the big genius, wasn't... He's, he's not going to waste his time writing that. No, and actually, to be honest, Shelley, the big genius, wrote some really mediocre poetry. <laughs> not a big Shelley fan? No. Yeah, I'm not a big Shelley or Byron fan. 
I think of the lot, Coleridge and Wordsworth are the best, and never have been able to really stomach either Shelley or Byron. Who wrote Rolled Child to the Dark Tower King? That is Byron. That's Byron. Which is which is fine. I like that. I mean, Byron is better than Shelley. I, I can read a little bit of Byron and really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, Byron but... in the end wasn't necessarily even romantic. That's why I said he was complicated. Mm-hmm. He was more of a... He admired old classical forms. He admired Shakespeare. He wanted to be a poet in that lineage. He didn't want to be a new romantic poet, even though he lived a romantic life. He's an interesting character, but we're not talking about him today. So, yeah, and so that's that's where we get Frankenstein. Um, this was in 1816. Two years later, it was published and was kind of a phenomenon. So we haven't even talked about horror. We have not. There's not much history of it before this. Yeah, um, it was anonymous, by the way. Anonymous. It was anonymous? Mm-hmm. Okay. Until the second edition. Yeah, and then she would actually write introductions and stuff and telling it was a the story. Pl- it was a play adaptation that made it famous, according to this thing that I just read. Okay. Yeah, Dracula got a lot of traction with the play adaptation, too, which I've seen, which is fun to see if you ever get a chance. Nice. But that has nothing, that's neither here nor there. Here nor um, scare. For people who want to hear more about the history of horror after Frankenstein, they should go and listen to Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah, or the Dracula episode. Or the Dracula episodes. But as we point to, I think it is in Something Wicked This Way Comes, we point to the fact that Frankenstein is the first horror book, meaning that all the elements we have of horror are here mm-hmm. for us to see. Right. And so why is this horror as opposed to gothic? And so just a quick aside to talk about gothic and where it is. And um, it's when we think of gothic, we think of the old house. We think of sort of creaking dungeons yeah, and creaking chains dungeons and rattling. Just the horror that yeah, comes yeah. with that, this feeling of dread and horror. Mm-hmm. What Shelley would add is the monster. The supernatural. Right? The supernatural. This element of something that is causing the horror beyond just the supernatural itself existing, right? Yeah, if you read Jane Austen, like Northanger Abbey, I'm sure we'll do that one yep. year. It's about a girl that's into the gothic novels, and she would have read things like Anne Radcliffe. Anne Radcliffe's stories, which were, would have existed before Shelley, are like a young heroine goes to a mysterious castle where her uncle lives, and there's a weird nobleman that falls in love with her, and then there's a creepy guy that locks her up, and there's rattling chains, and there's spooky things going down hallways and stuff like that. But then at the end of the story, you always find out that it's, it's kind of like the scooby-doo thing there's just the the mechanics you know oh well he was tricking us so that he could get the fortune so that you know because we Mm -hmm. had to hide the aunt in the uh cellar because she was crazy it was all always that kind of stuff and that was kind of the formula for those for the early gothic novels at least yeah and so shelley's innovation is adding basically is adding the monster Mm -hmm. one of the earliest books would have been uh walpole Walpole castle of ontario yeah and so this would have been in 1764, I think, when this was written. So, it, But it, th- those are products of the Romantic movement. I mean, they're about feeling and... They're always in like it's dark uh, mountains with... There's, there's yeah. lots of atmosphere. What they give yeah, you is I the mean, atmosphere. It's like you see that you s- this history comes in waves and you can see this. In 1960s, feeling became very important again. Well, by the 1980s, you had the gothic movement basically with New Wave, The Cure, and all this stuff. People, when you start worshiping emotions, you're going to start going to the dark side of the emotions and really praising and loving those, or at least some people will. And so the gothic is kind of, that's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Gothic was the dark side of this, the depression and the horror and the fear and the um, drama, right? Yeah. Well, what I think people find what I certainly found when I was going this direction is that positive emotions are hard to feel sublime about because if you disconnected from an actual understanding of God, love is pretty insipid, but despair, hate, death, gloom, those things 
to a certain sort of 17-year-old mind can seem very powerful and big and numinous. So I think it makes complete sense that many people would go towards the dark because the dark seems a lot more powerful and therefore a lot more sublime. But what's important? Sublime, numinous, and insipid all in the same sentence. That's right. That's pretty amazing. Yep. Check, check, check. Yep. That's uh, what's really important about what you said there, though, was to a 17-year-old mind, Mm -hmm. which is showing, I mean, the Gothic novel, as wonderful as it can be, and as much as I, I mean, I kind of like Wuthering Heights. Sure. I've never read Jane Eyre. We'll do that one these days, and we'll we'll definitely do Jane Eyre. I think my understanding is Jane Eyre is the best of the lot, Mm -hmm. because it's actually mature in a way that the others aren't. To me, Jane Eyre, I'll I'll give a mini preview of my thoughts on that. I think it's so good that it's kind of annoying, because at the end of the day, you're kind of still stuck with some of the formulas, and you're like... Oh, but you were so close to transcending them. Anyway. Yeah. I'm excited to read Jane Eyre. Yeah. It's one that I should have read. It's and I, th- I think it's, I'll like it. Yeah, yeah, you'll probably will. I mean, I like Wuthering Heights just fine. But yeah. the problem with those books is they are immature. Jane, I mean, Jane Eyre aside, I'm talking about Wuthering Heights and um, these gothic novels. Oh, like certainly. That. That's Anne why, I mean, that's why Jane Austen monster. had such success making fun of them. With mm-hmm. so Northanger Abbey, yeah. They were ripe for parody. And it's because they are immature and... A lot of the romantic stuff that we read is immature. Most of it's immature. And which is, I think, in the end, gets us to Frankenstein. And spoilers, Frankenstein is immature. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's what you would ex- it's what you would expect the young, the, the person we made fun of with the guy living in his mother's basement, the kind of guy that Ernest Klein imagines yeah, himself yeah. to be. It's what you would expect them to write, the sort of, mm-hmm. if they had any talent. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's an immature novel. She was young when she wrote it. Right. But she's remembered for this. Yeah. The imagery is so powerful, yeah. but then the mechanism of the story is so lame. Like he's yeah. just, I, I know we're going to talk about this later, but it's just like, I'm going to kill you, Frankenstein. Okay. Sorry, thanks, monster. Now I'm going to go about my business until next time you yeah, do something. something. It's fat, one of the things that's fascinated me when we've been reading these books with the book ending and getting to do the context and stuff is seeing how even the people we admire as the great writers, how their early stuff is immature. They're young. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it really is, has the immaturity of being a young person. Dubliners is very immature, even though people admire it so much. Yeah. This is an immature work. All of Dick, most of Dickens' early stuff is very just immature. Yeah, it's And their greater works, you know, Bleak House, which we're reading, but also Anna Karenina, all this sort of stuff. It's later in their life after they've actually experienced and have something to say. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Frankenstein. I don't have anything else to say. There you go. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about some of this as we go. What's that sound? It's the scare plane going over, bringing us to Gaggage. Oh, man, it just made me feel sick. <laughs> gaggage check, the part of the show where we talk about what... Ge- I'm just going to say baggage. Not everything has to be a Halloween pun. What? Sorry, Jake. Jake's really I'm so upset. disappointed. Yeah. Crestfallen, heartbroken. Other insipid words Sin. trying to touch on the numinous. Ah, come on. That was, I mean, that was a good point that I made. It was a great point. And you I don't use know. those words excellently and appropriately. I just thought it was fun. That's I don't know all. what other words I could have used. I'm, there are none. There are, there are <laughs> absolutely none. No. We have it from the <laughs> contextual sex in himself. Oh, Jake, what gaggage did you bring to this spook? I have... Big horror fan over here. I'm a big horror fan, as everybody knows. I've read all the. Ho- I've not read any horror. Dracula. Probably you've Dracula, read at least two. Something c- wicked this way comes. Something wicked this way comes is not the most frightening book in the world. The uh, Giz- that Giz- Dickens Giz- short Giz- story. The Signalman. The Signalman. Yeah. That's pretty great. Uh, Currents at Owl Creek Bridge. That's also a great story. Yep. Some Ambrose Pierce. Love Ambrose Pierce. So I've read some short stories, and of course, 
The Goosebumps. The Goosebumps, yes. Uh, the entire collection, I'm pretty sure. Wow. Close to it. I'm sure there's been new Goosebumps since and then. I actually looked it up, and I think that not too long ago I looked it up. There may be like a new Goosebumps series, but the original series. So I, I think I ended up reading them all before they were done. There you go. Um, uh, my familiarity with Frankenstein and his creature is shaped largely by young frankenstein the monster squad and the monsters wonderful that's about all i got relics of pop culture all (laughs) yep i'm not i had not read the book i was surprised by the book being so very different from the i guess the sort of classic interpretation that we get because of the movies Mm -hmm. i haven't seen the original old 1930s films either though we're gonna watch that we should say we're gonna do what we're gonna do two episodes on the books of this one and then another one and then the episode after that we'll actually we'll actually talk about the original james whale 1931 frankenstein and we're gonna have time so i'm gonna go ahead and throw a bride of frankenstein in there as well because they're a good twofer and they're both about an hour long we, we'll talk about them both in the not the next episode but the episode after that so there's an announcement dear listener and but we should say I mean, I guess it's obvious. I don't. Did you have any more context? I'm sorry. I don't think so. I, I really don't bring a lot to the genre. But the important thing that you made me think of that we should we should just mention, <laughs> context-wise, is of course. I mean, it, it goes without saying. I guess Frankenstein is such a staple of pop culture, and everybody knows him through the Universal horror series, the Boris yeah. Karloff makeup, the green guy with the neck bolt and the big feet, and the shambling zombie walk. That's ubiquitously how everyone thinks of Frankenstein now. I mean, yep. I don't know that I'm not faulting you for not saying that, Brandon. Maybe it was just so obvious. But I think I did say that at the beginning. Did you? Mm-hmm. Oh, well. I don't think I said the universal stuff, yeah. but I did say that he was... I, I think I said this book was a part of the cultural imagination. Well, we will watch... Yes, you did. We will watch that movie, and so we'll be able to talk about it in a little bit more detail, but that is the first sound horror movie, and it completely defined the genre, much more so than Dracula, even. It's a yeah. big deal for I just n- I just never think of movies, Nathan. You just never think about movies, because you're an intellect. Oh, yeah. Your big brain just absorbs books from words. Hey, my, what's my baggage? My baggage is I love the horror genre. I've actually never read Frankenstein, though. I tried to read it a couple times as a teenager when I was really into all that kind of stuff, and it defeated me because it's so boring. It's just really boring. I actually enjoyed it decently this time, and you can definitely see why it was powerful at the time, but when I was not being paid to do it, I didn't do it because you got to put up with this guy writing to his sister about the ice expedition and then you got to put up with frankenstein's early years and i was coming off of dracula and dracula just like gets right to down to business the best part of dracula by far is the first third and it right out of the gate we're in transylvania dracula's greeting us he's welcoming us into his castle the voluptuous (laughs) brides are feasting on our blood everything is real spooky and you know that novel for all its faults still exerts a little bit of power i would say especially in its first chunk whereas frankenstein it has a few scenes it has a few images here and there it's got obviously a very potent idea at its core but basically it's not that exciting for someone who's actually looking for a a horrific thrill a buzz a buzz yeah it's not going to make you feel like you're in touch with that that little supernatural eerie otherness that you want to get in touch with when you're reading this kind of stuff and i've also never liked what they what the kids call kids don't call it this what the horror nerds call body horror i've i've always been much more a fan of the supernatural school ghosts and vampires and stuff when we get into the idea of 
which Frankenstein, you could argue whether Frankenstein even really does this. But when I think of Frankenstein, I think of something stitched together from parts, you know, a body. And to me... Same class as zombies and mummies and... Yeah. And that... There's a line that you could argue vampires have some of that too. But to me, I've always liked the big, scary, supernatural monster, H.P. Lovecraft's demons from another dimension. That kind of stuff was always the kind of stuff I liked the best. And then the the things that felt a little bit more real that made you think about your grandma's cancer or made you think about real things that happen to human bodies were always just a little bit more off-putting to me. Mm-hmm. And so Frankenstein belongs in that category of, oh, I don't really want to think about brain transplants. And not that the book really has much of that, but the cultural baggage of Frankenstein predisposed me not to like it as much because I'm just not a big fan of that that particular subgenre of horror. I find it to be actually more horrifying in a more unpleasant way than the more supernatural stuff, which is just kind of fun. I'm speaking a little bit about my old self here. But I have seen all the old Universal Frankenstein movies. I have seen all the Hammer Horror Frankenstein movies from the 60s and 70s, about seven of those. I've seen movies like Frankenstein Created Women, Terror of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, Bride of Frankenstein, Son and Frankenstein, of course, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, which features an appearance from Frankenstein as played by Gren Strange because Boris Karloff had already given up the role at that point. I have seen the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein, which is terrible, and I turned it off because it's pretty bad, which features... Anybody know who plays the monster in that? Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro as the monster. Weird. And Helena Bonham Carter back in her days where she played ingenues instead of horrible shrews plays the girl in that one. And old Kenny B, of course, plays the doctor. Victor. Victor. Is it pretty faithful to the book? Yeah. I don't know. It's very romantic. And over. it's like all the worst tendencies of Branagh. The camera is always swirling and the music is always. It's just like he was the wrong choice for that. It's like all the sort of over-the-topness that he brings to Hamlet, which kind of works because Hamlet's in and of itself enough Shakespearean. of Shakespearean? Yes, Shakespearean. <laughs> it's, yeah, he's, he's amping Frankenstein up to 11 where you kind of want your Frankenstein to feel sort of dark and repressed. He's like, I am Frankenstein. It just, it, it's, it's not very good. It's, it was, came out the same year, around the same time as Bram Stoker's Dracula, the one that Francis Ford <clears throat> Coppola did, which has similar issues of just really romanticizing and eroticizing and over-the-top-sizing mm-hmm. Dracula, which obviously with Dracula is a little easier to do, but still both pretty bad movies. <sighs> that being said, I've watched a lot of Frankenstein movies and enjoyed some of them, not enjoyed others. Never was never my favorite horror anti-hero or my favorite monster, but I was a genre fiend back in the day, so I've seen them all. Brandon? My baggage. Your baggage? Have you ever seen Frankenstein Created <clears throat> Women or Fra- Frankenstein no. Must Be Destroyed? I've never seen any of these movies. Anyone who's listened to my baggages in the past knows that uh, horror is not something I was ever really into. So I didn't read Frankenstein or Dracula or any of that. So I did watch The X-Files with my dad. Yeah. That's kind of horror. It has horror elements to it. Yeah. Yeah. I watched X-Files too, Some X-Files was great. But my first, I read Frankenstein in high school for a class, was sort of indifferent to it. Then had to read it again in college. Again, was sort of indifferent to it. And um, now I've read it again. Yep. And was sort of indifferent to it. Yep. So <laughs> it stayed fairly consistent for me. I know what you mean. Um, hey, 
Or go ahead. Yeah, it's that's really my baggage. That's your baggage. It has had no um, lasting effect, negative or positive, over me. There you go. There you go. And we'll find out whether that's remaining true. Yep. Well, guys, this has been an absolutely electrifying episode. <laughs> but that's a pun based on Frankenstein movies and not Frankenstein books, I don't think. Let's do some... There is that scene of lightning hitting the tree. There is some. There is that scene of lightning hitting the tree. Hey, let's do some donor scream outs real quick, and then we'll come back next week, and we'll talk a little bit more about this spook. Uh, Chelsea E. Chelsea E. Chelsea E. Oh, wait. Am I supposed to scream now? Is that how we did that? That is tradition. I don't know if you want to right at the moment, but. This is a building full of children. <laughs> I'll, I'll do muffled screams. Okay. Oh, oh man. <laughs> uh, Nathan Witchsons. Nathan Witchsons. Ah! Little Jimmy, Jimmy Scream and little Annie Spookly. <laughs> little Annie Spookly. <laughs> ah! Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Andrew and Deathster. The love the what death star <laughs> andrew and death star Ooh. <laughs> the love birds and little Ooh. baby timothy the love ravens there we go <laughs> the love ravens and little baby timothy <laughs> the immortal or no the inscrutable jenny e! the inscrutable jenny e! E! <laughs> rob robber oh and Ron die. <laughs> yeah, Rob Robert and Ron die. The Love Ravens. Robert and Ron die. The Love Ravens. <laughs> <laughs> John and Kill and Little Baby Sacks of Heads. Little Baby Axe. Little Baby Axe. There you go. That was much easier. <laughs> John and Kill and Little Baby Axe. <laughs> ah! Uh The Keith Master. Still works. Yeah, the Keith Master. Oh. <laughs> David's David's Frighty Skin. Sins. Sins, yeah, sure. David's Frighty Skins. Sins. I like skins. David's Frighty Skins. David's Frighty Skins. Ah! My beloved mother, Death. Nathan's beloved mother, Death. ah. (laughs) Waka, waka. (laughs) (laughs) Dia! Dia! Diane and Jude Death, the lovebirds. Diane and Jude Death, the lovebirds. Ah! Danny! Danny! The dude! The dude. Die J, Sammy G! Die J, Sammy G! Jay and Katie, who are cold and love screams. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love screams. Ah! Benny and Dana E. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Benny and Dana E. Ah! Skerrick and Kath Rent. Okay. <laughs> Dara. Skerrick, Skerrick and Kath Rent. The Death Birds. The Death Birds. And little baby Axe. And little baby Axe. Professor X. 
Ah. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, ah. Professor Axe Professor. and Lady Axe. Professor Axe. Ah. And Lady Axe. Oh. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> if you want to be at a donor shout out, you can sign up. Scream out. If you want to be, if you want a donor scream out, you can sign up on patreon.com forward slash the spookening. I probably shouldn't Halloween pun the actual URL where people go to give us money. So it's forward booking or what is it? Forward slash the booking. Book, patreon.com forward slash the booking. The spookening today was performed by all three of us. <laughs> and thanks for listening, everyone. Tell them something to be frightened of, Jake. Puns. No, they don't want to be frightened of puns. They love puns. <laughs> you should be frightened of the new album from My Soul Among Lions. <laughs> That's right. Ava- available right now. Die Skull Among Dians. It should be available today. Uh, yeah, totally. On all platforms. So you should be able to buy it, download it, listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music. All right. Goodbye. Or good die. Goodbye.